You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hi, this is Lenny Goldberg, and thanks for joining me. This past Shabbat, we read Parshat Nitzavim. Parshat Nitzavim opens like this. Atem Nitzavimayom. You are standing here today. Lefnei Hashem Elokechem. Before the Lord your God. Roshechem, your leaders, your tribes, the elders, officers. Kol Ish Israel, All men of Israel. Tapchem v'neshechem. Your little ones, your wives, the stranger in your midst. From the chotzvei tzecha, from the hue of the wood to the water drawer, you're all here. Why? To enter this covenant of the Lord your God. So what's happening here? Why is God doing this? Well, after receiving the Torah on Mount Sinai 40 years earlier, now the Jewish people are ready to enter the land of Israel. And it's time to reaffirm the commitment, the commitment to the Torah, the commitment to what they received 40 years ago in Har Sinai. Because every once in a while, you have to strengthen your commitment. A pact was made, but sometimes the feeling kind of fades away. So you have to reaffirm that commitment. And the Jews are going to do the same thing a third time when they get to Shechem. That is, after they enter the land of Israel and they've reached a state of perfection, being the people of Israel in the land of Israel, they're going to make another Brit. They're going to reaffirm again that commitment in Shechem to fulfill that Torah in the land of Israel. You know, so a lot of people like to say, hey, the Torah was given in the desert. You know, that proves you don't have to do the Torah in the land of Israel. You could do it anywhere. But remember, when they entered the land of Israel, they reaffirmed that commitment in Shechem because now they were in their land and they achieved that perfection. And it's written in the beginning of Pashat Nitzavim. It says like this, He says, it's not with you alone I am making this covenant, but I am making this covenant with those who are standing here with us today before God and with those who are not yet here with us today. That is, this is forever. This is a Brit Adolam, Lenetzach. It's a Brit, a covenant between God and the Jewish people, Olam, that lasts forever. And both Christianity and Islam make the claim that God somehow changed his mind. You know, we were the chosen people, but now we're not anymore. God uh, exchanged us for another people. No, we see here that the covenant God made with us in Pashat Nitzavim, it's a Brit that will never be revoked. It's for all times. Yeah, we sinned and we're going to sin and we're going to get punished for it. But we see here that despite the claims of the Christians and the Muslims, Hashem isn't changing his mind. But what I wanted to talk about today is this opening line, Atem Nitzavim, you're standing here. Standing here to reaffirm your commitment to Torah a second time. But the thing is, the word Nitzavim very often has negative connotations. Nitzavim, the way it sounds, I'm standing, it connotes haughtiness. You're standing up straight. You're standing up erect. For example, in Machloket Korach, in Pashat Korach, we have Datan and Aviram. They took the side of Korach against Moses. Very evil people. And when Moses approached Datan and Aviram, these two evil men, it's just like this. And they got up from the dwelling of Korach, they stood up, that same word. They stood up erect at the door of their tents. And Rashi says there, they, they came out standing. Rashi says, standing straight up to blaspheme and to curse. 
So then Nitzavim has a very negative connotation, and that word shows up again in the story of Goliath. Goliath, who was the ultimate mecharefa megadef, he was a blasphemer and a cursor, who chirefet malchut Yisrael, he cursed the armies of Israel. It says about him too, that yetsev arba'im yom, he stood up there for 40 days. 40 days, he was cursing and taunting the people and the armies of Israel. So again, Nitzavim connotes a haughtiness and an arrogance. So why here, in our Pasha, the name of the Pasha is Nitzavim. You're standing here, all of the people of Israel. So why is it suddenly okay to be Nitzavim? And the answer is this. Regarding the individual, pride, arrogance, haughtiness is the worst of all possible midot. But when you're speaking about the nation of Israel as a people, then pride is not only a positive thing, it's essential to what we are. We're the proud Jewish people. We are God's chosen people. Hey, that's pride. When we get called up to the Torah and Aliyah, and we say, Blessed is Hashem who chose us from all the other peoples. Of course, Jewish pride is basic. After all, we're the people of God. That's something to be proud about. But on an individual basis, on a personal level, we shun from it. There's nothing worse than pride. There's nothing more despicable than an arrogant person. As a matter of fact, Hashem says, me and the arrogant person can't be in the same room. And for the individual, humility is the number one characteristic that Hashem is looking for. And any Musar book will teach you that. So of course, on a personal level, the Jew is supposed to be humble. Look at King Saul. He was chosen because of his humility. And King David. And you can see it in your everyday life. There were always certain rabbis who I learned from who I ask questions to, or maybe I'd watch on TorahAnyTime.com. And sometimes I would really enjoy some of these shiurim from the rabbis. And one of the rabbis I especially enjoyed listening to. But after a while, I kind of felt an air of arrogance in the man. And it turned me off, even if he said the right things, you know, even, even if he was saying true things, very scholarly as well. The minute there's that hint of arrogance, it's just a turn off. You don't want to receive any more from that person. Or let's say someone donates a lot of money to different causes, gives a lot of tzedakah. Well, you'll admire him a lot less if he brags about it, right? But if he does it without telling anybody and you find it on your own, that's a lot more impressive because nobody likes gaiva. That's how pride and arrogance can ruin everything. Even if you have a rav you ask questions to, you want to feel that rav is a humble vessel, right? He's humble, he has his knowledge, but the moment you might feel he thinks highly of himself. He goes down in your eyes so fast. That's what happens to me anyway. And so obviously humility is the number one trait for a Jew. But you got to differentiate if you're talking about how a Jew conducts himself in his everyday life and how he interacts with other people. You have to distinguish between that. And when you're talking about Am Yisrael, Klal Yisrael, the nation of Israel, in that situation, you stand up straight and proud. Now, I know this seems like a basic, simple concept, but it's incredible how many people don't grasp it. And that's because in the 2000-year exile, when we were reduced to religion with no national entity, and there really was no Klali Israel to speak of, so we only knew the negative side of pride. It's bad, gotta stay away from it, run from it like fire. It's all about humility. There really wasn't much of an option where you can have Jewish pride. We're all a bunch of individuals scattered all over the world. We're not really even a nation at that point. So you're always in, you know, humble mode. 
Keep your head down and lay low. And then it starts to become part of your nature. Even rabbis and scholars can get that way. And now suddenly, when we've come into the land of Israel, and we are a nation in our land, a sovereign body, it's hard for people to just flip it, right? And suddenly realize, hey, now's the time for Jewish pride. Pride in our people, pride in our Torah, pride in our army, proud of winning wars in six days. Hey, suddenly pride, it's a good thing. It's positive. And so most people actually get it wrong. They do the opposite. When it comes to their personal pride, for their personal ego, if they get cut off driving or they, or somebody takes their parking spot or they get slighted personally in any way, that's when they get upset and angry. They're defending their pride. If it comes to their personal advancement, they won't forfeit an inch. But when it comes to the land of Israel, suddenly you got to make concessions. They wouldn't make concessions in their personal life. But for Eretz Israel, that's all right. Sometimes you just got to compromise. And it's very hard for a person to be able to flip his characteristic. If he's a humble person, he just remains humble no matter what. Just like an arrogant person doesn't suddenly become humble. But a Jew has to have both those sides to him. In the book of Shmuel, there's a list of 36 of David's best fighting men. And one of the people listed there, his name is Adino Etzni. And that name is comprised of two words, Adino. Adin means gentle. And Etzni means tree. So the Chazal say that when he learned Torah, he was able to humble himself like a caterpillar. But when he went out to war, he was like a cedar tree. Ha'adino etzni. That's the Jewish model. He knows when to be humble. He knows when not to be humble. And this coming Rosh Hashanah, we're going to read from the prophets, the prayer of Chana. And the child that came out of that prayer was Shmuel Anavi. Shmuel Anavi, Samuel the prophet. He had both sides to him. As humble as he was, and as righteous as he was, and as gentle as he was, he had no problem slicing up the king of Amalek into pieces. You don't usually see that. Usually it's not part of the same skill set. You know, the same guy who is very gentle and righteous, he's able to flip that and cut up the bad guy from Amalek into pieces. But that's the Jewish model. And that's one of the reasons you have to participate in my Bible classes. Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes. We learn about the Shmuels and the Yoavs and the Avners and the Davids and the Sauls and the Yonatans who had that to them. They were righteous and humble in their private lives. But when facing the enemy, they can flip it in an instant. Okay, I want to move on to the second part of the Parsha, Parshat Vayelech. And Parshat Vayelech is all about the transition of leadership from Moses to Joshua. And there's such a difference between what a leader is, according to Judaism, and how we view quality leadership in the Western world. Now, why was Joshua chosen? Well, obviously, he was the right-hand man of Moses. That made him a good candidate. But the sages mentioned Joshua's humility, that he did the small things that nobody's watching, that he would misadir the safsalim in the study hall. He would arrange the tables and chairs in the study hall. Yeah, that was the criteria for a Jewish leader. So Jewish leaders are judged by those little things that nobody notices, by those little quiet things that show character, that don't have a lot of glory in them, and not by one's ability to give a good speech. And so the criteria of a leader, according to Judaism, is so much different than what we see in the West. And I want to use this as like a catapult to talk about the Republican primaries, American politics. We saw a couple of weeks ago a debate between the 
eight Republican candidates. Trump didn't participate, but we had Christie and Vivek and DeSantis and Nikki Haley and a couple others. And when you look at how America chooses its candidates and how the media likes to play over and over again, the candidates that they think are good for ratings, which certainly influences public opinion. Like you have a guy like Vivek, you know, a real smooth talker. And because of that, he's a real media darling. You know, he's got the gift of gab. And then you compare him to a guy like Ron DeSantis. You see him up there on the podium. He hardly got a word in. Pence did all the talking. He's a good looking guy. Pretty well spoken. Doesn't have the flair of Vivek or Obama. He seems respectful and decent. And despite the fact that he's governor of the most vibrant, vigorous, freest state in America, Florida, Despite that, he just doesn't seem to move in the polls. You'd think he'd be close to Trump. You'd think that he would be able to pull away from these other guys. I mean, we're talking about a guy who changed the entire political dynamics of that state. You know, it used to be that a Republican candidate was hoping to win Florida, maybe by 1%, 2%. But today, Florida is a totally red state. Ron DeSantis did that in one term. Today, the Democrats, they write it off. DeSantis did that. And then you look at all the talking points of the conservatives. They talk about school choice. Well, the state of Florida has the most extensive school choice. Another talking point, the George Soros prosecutors. Well, DeSantis is the only governor who fired them. And then there's the teachers union. We don't want critical race theory being taught in the schools. We don't want sexualization of our children. Well, DeSantis is the only guy who stopped it. The conservatives are upset about corporate wokeness. Well, DeSantis took on the biggest corporation. He took on Disney, the darling of America. He took a lot of heat for it. But yeah, he went after Mickey Mouse. He's working so what happened in California won't happen to Florida and won't corrupt Florida with all that Disney wokeness. The conservative base is upset in how the pandemic was handled by those democratic states, what happened in New York and New Jersey, closing down businesses, closing down schools for little kids who weren't really susceptible to the COVID virus. Well, DeSantis didn't do that. Florida didn't close down their schools. They didn't have all these mask mandates because Ron DeSantis, he went by the science, he had his experts, and he went according to them. I mean, Florida has been a beacon for what should be done in America. You want to talk about the crime and the rioting that went on in 2020? Cities were getting burned down. Didn't happen in Florida. As a matter of fact, when states wanted to defund the police, Ron DeSantis told the policemen to come to Florida. We can use you. And Florida is a state of law and order. One of the very few left. So you'd think that maybe he would move a little bit in the polls. But not really. Because how do they judge candidates in America? Well, listen to the commentators talk on that debate. What were they saying? Vivek, he really connects, you know? He connects. DeSantis doesn't connect like him. That's what they talk about. That's what interests people. Substance doesn't matter anymore. It's all a show. And America was always great at entertainment. And that's what drives the politics too. Everything's Hollywood. How else can Obama become the president? He's a good speaker, puts out a good show, got the gift of gab. Forget about content. Forget about substance. If you can make a good speech and you're a good campaigner, like a Bill Clinton, you can be president of the United States. Because if you're going by substance, none of those candidates, no matter how much they promise, 
they really haven't done anything. What did Haley do in her state? I don't know, but she doesn't even talk about her achievements because they probably weren't that great. And so it looks like Trump is a shoo-in to win the nomination if he's not in jail. But in a general election, because he's so polarizing, people either hate him or love him, he can lose again. I think a guy like DeSantis in a general election has a better shot. Not to mention he's a lot younger than Trump. Trump is going to be like 80 by the time the elections come. But one thing's for sure, if Yeshua Benun or Moshe Rabbeinu himself were running for office, they would probably have absolutely no shot of winning because they just don't connect, you know? Moshe Rabbeinu is Kavet Peh. He wasn't a good speaker. He'd probably be a terrible campaigner. I mean, who's looking at the person's achievements, his character traits? That's kind of boring. And it doesn't interest the media and it doesn't interest the average American. Moving on. You must have noticed a couple of weeks ago the bloody brawls that took place between the Eritreans in South Tel Aviv when these Africans, they faced off against one another with lumber and pieces of metal and rocks and axes. And not only did they bludgeon each other, but they tore through a neighborhood of South Tel Aviv and smashed shop windows and police cars and blood was spattered all over the place. There was like 100 injured and about 14 policemen were hurt. And of course, these animals have to be thrown out of Israel, but I bring it up for another reason. You hear a lot about judicial reforms, judicial reforms, kind of gets boring, but this incident is an example of how important it is to have judicial reforms. Because for years, the Knesset has been trying to pass bills that would stop this illegal immigration. And by the way, these aren't poor refugees escaping asylum because it's tough for them in Africa. They're coming to make money and send it back to their families. They're not miskinim. They're not nebishes who are in some kind of danger over there. They've come to Israel to take advantage of us. And by the way, they hate us. They hate Jews. They hate Israel. From that perspective, they're worse than the immigrants who come to the United States. But the point is that every time the government tries to pass bills to limit some of the rights that they get and the privileges they get, so not to encourage them to keep coming here, Every time the Knesset passes bills to try to limit them, what happens? It gets to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court shoots it down every time. They don't care that Israel's going to end up like, you know, France or Canada. These Supreme Court judges don't live in South Tel Aviv. So you have all these African countries, all these Arab countries, and everybody's coming to little Israel, or one little country that's supposed to be a Jewish state, but it's not. It's a Western democracy for all peoples including these animals from Etria and Sudan. And again, in these riots, the Etrians were pitted against other Etrians. Imagine what they would do to us. That's what they do to each other. I want to talk about everybody's favorite topic, and that's the subject of unity. You know, one thing you hear a lot this time of year are those calls for unity. And there's nothing more empty than those carte blanche calls for unity and you hear it in Parshat Nitzavim because it says all of Israel, all your men, your women, your leaders, your children, your water carriers, and your wood choppers, everybody together, all part of Am Yisrael, sounds like unity. And so therefore the most important thing is unity with everybody. And during Sukkot, we'll hear about the four species, Arba Minim, and the Arava represents the Jews without good deeds, without mitzvot, yet he's included in the Arba Minim with the Etrog and the Hadas and the Lulav. And so that shows that we have to have unity with all the Rishoyim, with all the evil Jews too. Well, let me explain something. That only works if that Jew 
who doesn't have mitzvahs and doesn't have good deeds, represented by the Arava. It only works if that particular Jew wants to absorb the Kedusha, the holiness, and the smell and the taste of the Etrog and the Hadas. When the Jew, who may not have mitzvot, he may be totally secular, but he wants to be included in Kal Yisrael, he feels part of it, and 90% of secular Jews are like that. They don't hate Judaism. They're just weak, and the Eitzahara wins out, but they have a lot of appreciation for Masoret, for tradition. They respect the Jewish faith. But those haters of Judaism who protest in Tel Aviv now, those of the New Israel Fund, that despicable organization with the innocuous name, the New Israel Fund, who fund the enemy, who fund all those Israel-hating NRGs, well, those Jews, they've already crossed the line. They're the ones who aid and abet our enemies, the African illegals who riot, who infiltrate the Israeli judiciary, who hate God and hate Judaism. That's not an arava. That's not your regular secular Jew. We're talking about traitors. They want no part in Klal Yisrael. And so all this babbling about unity this time of year, it's really just talk. Because what are you going to unify around? You can't have unity in a vacuum. Unity has to be around something, around some ideal. So what are you going to unify around? In Parshat Yitzavim, when all of Klal Yisrael was together, all the different kinds, they were unified around the Torah. It was a unity around truth. And so we have to stop throwing these slogans around because there's really nothing to talk about with some of these Jews. And on the holiday of Sukkot, we're going to read from the prophets, the Haftorah. We're going to read about the war of Gog and Magog. And there it says, during that war, that Yehuda will also fight against Jerusalem. Yes, we have this chilling verse in the book of Zechariah that Yehuda also will fight against Jerusalem. And so we know that there will be traitors in our midst during the times of redemption. And you expect to make unity with them? They're going to war against us. And we're talking about unity. We don't want to unify with them. We want to beat them. Because if they win, then we lose. Imagine if the Maccabees behaved that way against the Hellenists. There never would have been a Hanukkah. In closing, I want to talk a little about the prophecies that we've been reading over these last few weeks. During the entire month of Elul, every Shabbat, we're reading the prophecies of Nechama, prophecies of comfort and consolation, mostly from the book of Yeshiau, Isaiah the prophet. And in these prophecies of Nechama, of consolation and comfort, the same themes keep coming up. The prophet talks about how Hashem will take vengeance upon those nations that persecuted the Jewish people. There's a lot of prophecies about the kibbutz galiot that's going to take place, about the land giving off its fruits. And just a couple of examples. In Isaiah 60, Isaiah says, Se'i savivenech, lift up your eyes. Uru'u kulam nikpatsu balach. And look how all the nations are gathered to you. Your sons are coming from afar. Mi'ele ka'avte ufena. Who are these who fly like clouds, like doves flying to their nests? So that's how the prophet describes the kibbutz galiot process, the ingathering of the exiles, flying like clouds, like doves flying back to their coats. And in Isaiah chapter 61, he says, you will no longer be called azuvah, forsaken and abandoned. And your land will no longer be termed shmama. Your land will no longer be termed desolate, but you will be called chavtzeba. You will be Hashem's delight. Hashem delights in you and your land will be espoused. That is, it's as if 
there's going to be a marriage. What's the marriage? As a young man marries a virgin, so will your sons wed you. The parable being that the land is like the wife and the young man marries her. That's the Jewish people coming back. As the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And then there's the Haftorah we read this past Shabbat. Don't be afraid, land. Be glad and rejoice, for God has done great things. So with telling the land as if the land has feelings, don't worry, be happy, rejoice, for God's going to do great things. And one of those great things that the threshing floors will be full of corn and the vats will overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten. You will eat in plenty and be satisfied and my people will never again be ashamed. And this is how we ended the Haftarah. And you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and I am God, your Lord, and there is no one else and my people will never again be ashamed. So you can't help but get the chills from these prophecies. You have to have ice in your veins, not to get a little bit excited about it. And for me, it was really special this Shabbat because I got a new granddaughter and my daughter and son-in-law called the new baby Gili, which means be glad. And they didn't even know that that word was in our Haftorah here that I just read. Gili smachi, be happy and rejoice. And the prophet, again, isn't talking to the Jewish people. He's talking to the Adama, to the land of Israel. Be happy because your people are coming back and the land is going to prosper. Now, I know Gili isn't your usual name, but I notice these days that a lot of the names given to the kids here in the settlements especially, they're not your normal names, you know, like Rifki, Esti, Chana. Instead, you have all these other names like Achishena and Emunah. And I got a grandchild named Keta David, Crown of David. But that's all right, unless I have trouble pronouncing the names, which I sometimes do. doesn't exactly come off the tip of my tongue. Come here, Keta David. I got another granddaughter named Uri Talia. Try saying that three times fast. That's a tough one too. But why do I bring these prophecies? Because it's one thing to read about them, but to think that we're living this now, that's what makes it so amazing. These prophecies are coming to fruition in our time. We have an ingathering of the exiles in full swing. We have the land giving off its fruits, just like the prophet said it would. And so that's my Aliyah pitch for this week. How can a Jew stay in the diaspora? Oh, I hate that word, diaspora. How can a Jew stay in the Golos, in the exile, when he reads these prophecies, prophecies that are coming true in our time. I know it's not an easy move to make. I made Aliyah at the age of 27. I was single and, and Baruch Hashem, it worked out for me. I have eight kids, about 18 grandchildren. I can't even count them anymore. I've been blessed and it all started here. My life started when I made Aliyah at 27 years old, which reminds me, our good friend and colleague, fellow Israel news talk radio guy, Steve Miller, you know, that funny guy from the show Lighten Up that plays on this station? Well, he's making the move. He'll be making Aliyah any day soon. And we're all pulling for him. And at the end of the day, every Jew's going to have to make that move. He's going to have to come to Eretz Israel, whether he likes it or not. So let's hope the Jews come voluntarily and not get vomited out of there. Because this is the place. It's the place of the prophets. It's the place where the prophecies come to fruition. And it's the place where the Bible happened. Which reminds me, you want to hear some good Bible stories? Don't forget to tune into my Bible classes, Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes, where we learn the Tanakh, the Bible, thoroughly. Bible stories you might have already known, 
but we put some meat on those bones so you can see just how deep the Bible really is, not only as a guide for how we should conduct ourselves in our personal lives, but also, no less important, we learn from the Bible, from the stories of Shmuel and David and Saul, we learn about how one conducts himself in the national sphere as well. And so let that be part of our tshuva process. This is the time of tshuva, of repenting and returning to our source. And the Bible is our source. And all these prophecies I just mentioned is really all about a national return as well. Shuva, we say. Shuva, return. So it's not just a personal shuva we strive for, but we see that the prophets talk about a national shuva where the Jews come home to their real home, to Eretz Israel, the place they were forcibly expelled from by the Romans. And somehow we ended up in Yemen and Russia and America and all those other foreign lands. But it's time to come home. And with that, I wish you all a Shana Tova. Until next time.